One of the uh, secrets to success is adequate preparation. That's true in, in every stage of life. It's true in your personal life. It's true in a business life. That if you're going to succeed, you've got to adequately uh, prepare. How many of us have, have heard that statement? Those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Uh, we've heard that. Listen, that is true in life. And let me tell you, the church is not an exception. Uh, we're not, we're not the, the one rule, the one exception to the rule. Last week, we talked about how God has great expectations for His church. He said He gives us a great commission. He gives us a great commandment. God has great expectations for your church. And I told you that it is a sin to be good when God expects you to be great. And sometimes we accept good in the place of the best, of that which is great. So the question is, how can we prepare to meet those great expectations? How can we do it? If we're honest, most churches do not live up to the great expectations. We don't. Most churches do not get it. You know, they're, they're so busy... Uh, they're so busy doing the work of doing church work that they forget to do the work of the church. The work of the church is to bring a lost world to Jesus Christ. That's the work of the church. Yes, it is to glorify God, to advance, to, to, to glorify God, but ultimately it is to, to make, the, make the good news so attractive that people fall to their knees in repentance of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. So how do we prepare to, for these great expectations? The early church is our model. If we want to get this right, we got to go back to the beginning, to the early church. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Last week, we looked at Acts 1, 1 through 11 on expecting great things. So if we're expecting great things, now we got to say, how are we going to prepare for those great things. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14, under the heading, preparing for great things. Luke writes, talking about the disciples, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they, was, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Three truths we pull out of this text. The first, to prepare for great things, we must come down from the mountain. To prepare for great things, we must come down from the mountain. The Mount of Olives is 2,600 feet above sea level. It's 250 feet higher than the Temple Mount, and it's about a half a mile east of the walls of Jerusalem. This was the place where the angel had, had came down, and uh, they, the disciples had watched Jesus ascend in the sky, and the angel stood there and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. But Jesus had told them, you got to go back to Jerusalem. You can't stay here on the mountain. You got to go back to Jerusalem and you got to wait for the power to come upon you 
then you will be my witnesses and you will spread the good news of my message. They were probably reluctant. Uh, many times we, we want to stay in that place where we had that spiritual high. We want to stay in that place where we felt close to God. You know, the disciples were guilty of this. We're, we're, all, we're all guilty of this. Many Christians are not content to visit the mountain. They want to camp out there. You know the story uh, of the way it worked. Uh, Peter, James, and John were invited to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And while they were on that mountain, Elijah and Moses came and descended into the cloud and began carrying on a conversation with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John were in awe. And Peter, being the spokesman of the group, he kind of said, hey, I know what let's do. Let's just stay here. And let's build three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for Jesus, and we'll just stay here on the mountain. They wanted to stay. They wanted to camp out on the mountain. I know what it's like. When I was a teenager, we always went to a place in Oklahoma called Falls Creek. If you don't know anything about Falls Creek, it's a great place. Falls Creek is located in the Davis Mountains of Oklahoma. And we would always go there for our, our youth camp, and it'd be a great time. We, we'd get away, you know, we couldn't take our radio. I guess, well, we had radios in those days, you know. We, I know, we were deprived, and we didn't have all the, but we didn't, you know, we had radios. And we couldn't take our radios, couldn't take our music, couldn't take all that stuff. I guess now they couldn't take their iPhones and all that stuff. But, you know, the point was we had to get away so we'd get in touch with God. And so we go to the mountains, and we, we'd have great time with the activities. We, we grow closer to one another, but ultimately we grow closer to God. And then when it came time to leave, you know, we really wanted to stay. We wanted to stay and, and, and keep that mountaintop experience, but we had to come back. We could not stay on the mountaintop. We had to come back to the valley. Listen, mountaintop experiences are wonderful, and they are needed in our life. It's our hope. I know when, when Kip and myself and Josh and myself, when we, when we plan a worship service, we say, how can we help the people experience God in a worship service? What can we do to draw our people closer to God. We may not say that verbally, but that's what we think. How can we help our people to have a mountaintop experience? Every worship service should draw us closer to God. They ought to all be a mountaintop experience. But listen, we cannot stay in the holy halls of worship separated from a needy world any more than the disciples could stay on the mountain. They had to come down from the mountain. They had to come down from that mountaintop experience before they would really experience what God had in store for them. We must come down from the mountain and come back into a world of lost, hurting, and perhaps even hostile people to the message of the gospel. But we ought to take the gospel to a world as of yet has not heard it. The gospel is never intended to be a shield it's supposed to be a sword that we go out and use against the enemy. We are to be engaged in the world. Listen, the Holy Spirit would not descend upon the disciples on the mountaintop. The Holy Spirit would only descend upon the people in the streets and in the marketplaces of Jerusalem when they were obedient to God and doing what God had called them to do. Then the Holy Spirit would descend. Then the Holy Spirit would come. And the power of the Holy Spirit manifests itself in the corporate body as we faithfully serve our Lord, as we faithfully serve our Lord and Savior. That's when we begin to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. But in order to experience that power, the disciples had to leave the mountaintop and they had to return to Jerusalem 
so God can move in their lives. The second truth, to prepare for great things, we must close ranks with one another. To prepare for great things, we must close ranks with one another. I want to look at these verses. I want us to, to look at how, how Luke goes to great lengths to describe how they banded together. Luke goes to great lengths to describe the unity of this early group of believers. I want us to do a little physical exercise here. I know some of you uh, are not into physical exercise, but trust me, this is not hard. You can do it. And the reason we're going to do this is because I want you to, to really visually see what Luke is trying to communicate. I want you to take out your pencils, take out your pen, whatever it is, your crayon, whatever it is you write with, okay? And I want you to circle some words, all right? Circle some words, underline, highlight. Uh, we're just going to walk through the passage a little bit. And I want you to look at verse 12, and I want you to circle these words. They returned. They returned. Now look down at verse 13. I want you to circle these words. They arrived. They went upstairs. Circle also in verse 3. They were staying. Skip down to verse 14. They all joined together. You get in the picture? You're beginning to see something here? I mean, Luke is really driving home the point. These people were together. They were all united. Listen, folks, if we want to be a New Testament church, we got to get this one down. If we want to be a New Testament church, we have got to get this truth down. If we don't get this truth down, nothing else will matter. We've got to get this down if we want to be a New Testament church. The early church understood the necessity of unity. They understood it. Gone were the squabbles about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, they weren't worried about that. Gone was the difference between a, a tax collector and a zealot. I mean, you know those two are diametrically opposed to each other. That would be like a, a Democrat and a Republican. It'd be like a conservative and a liberal. Uh, I mean, these two were diametrically opposed. It'd be like a Trump supporter and a Bernie Sanders supporter, okay? Uh, you know, we don't support either one. You know who we support? Jesus Christ. That's who we support. Yeah. But you get the picture between a tax collector and a zealot. Gone were, were the, the, the animosity that may have existed between the brothers of Jesus and the disciples of Christ. Gone was any, any problems that may have existed over Peter's denial, over Thomas's doubt, and the desertion of all the disciples. Gone was those times. This little group of believers, they banded together. They were unified in what they were going to do. And then the way the, the New Testament describes it, the way the Greek brings it out, it went beyond mere assembly, and it went beyond mere activity. It, it went to, to agreement on what needed to be done. Why were they able to bond together like that? Why were they able to, to create this unity? What was the basis for their harmony? I believe as we examine the New Testament and we look at this passage, there's five things that bound these people together. Five things that really unified them. The first one is they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus Christ. The second one is they loved each other. The third one is, they had a great story to tell. I mean, who'd ever heard of somebody raised from the dead? I mean, that is a great story. I mean, that should have been headline number one in the Jerusalem Daily News. 
That would have made all the, all the channels, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, C-SPAN. That should have been, man, raised from the dead. They had a great story to tell. Four, they were willing to give their lives for the gospel. Every one of them said, we are willing to die for this truth. Fifth, they wanted to see Jesus again. Let me tell you something, my friends. Those five truths will unite anybody. Those five truths will unite any group of believers if they will get these things right. That will solidify them. Unite them for a common purpose. Unite them in unity so they can accomplish what God would have to do. These five things unite any church regardless of their differences. Wouldn't it be great to be a church like that? Wouldn't it be great to be a New Testament church like that? To be united in everything that needs to be done. They knew that if they were going to fulfill the Great Commission, they had to be united. They knew if they were going to accomplish the task that God had given to them, they needed to be united. And that's what the disciples did. They had a common purpose. And for 10 days, they met together in, in that room, that two-story apartment, that, that room up above. They met there. Wouldn't it be a church like that? To be united I'm not suggesting that we all form a commune. Uh, that's not what I'm suggesting. We live together for 10 days. Uh, there's some of you, I'm not sure I can live with you one day, all right? And you're probably saying, amen, I can agree with you, brother. <laughs> See how easy it was to unite one another right there? <laughs> I'm not suggesting that, that we form a, a commune and live in together. Well, well what I'm suggesting is that we, we, we be united. We become unified in what we have in common. Because I'll guarantee you, we have more in common than we do different. We have a lot more in common. Today, I'm afraid that, that if this passage of Scripture is written about the church today, it, it, would, it would say that, that, that a few of them joined together. It seems like we can't even get together on Sunday mornings without feuding and without fussing and without fighting. I know it's because we're Baptists. I know that. You know, you get, you get two Baptists in the room, you get three opinions. I know that, but I'm afraid that today it would be, uh, if Luke was writing it, then a few of them returned to Jerusalem. Uh, a few of them arrived. A few of them went upstairs. A few of them stayed where they were staying. A few of them joined together. Listen, we will never experience great things in our churches today until we close the ranks until we pull together. Listen, there's been more damage done to the kingdom of God by feuding Baptists here in the last 30 years. We've got to close our ranks. Close our ranks and do what needs to be done. We've got to get rid of our differences. We've got to get rid of petty squabbles. Can we just be honest? Most of the squabbles we have in a church don't matter to anything. It don't matter to anything. The only thing that matters when we get to heaven is how many people are you going to bring to Christ? Paul says, says, you are my fruit. You are my joy. You're what I'm going to brag about when I get to heaven. These are the people that I brought into the kingdom of God. Everything else does not matter. It does not matter. They're petty squabbles. 
We've got to get rid of our pride. We've got to get rid of our arrogance. And we've got to join hands in the cause of Christ. If we don't do it, listen, we are hurting the cause of Christ and we are going against the command of Jesus. Jesus himself prayed this prayer. Can you imagine this? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to go to the cross and give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the prayer that he prayed in John 17, 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You want to know what will bring the world to Jesus Christ? A unified church. That's what will bring the world to Jesus Christ. When we put aside our differences, we put aside our squabbles, we put aside our, our, our own hidden agendas and say, God, the only agenda I have is yours. And we become unified. Listen, if we don't become unified, we're not ready for great things. We're not ready for God to do great things in us. And we're not going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in the body of Christ. We got to close the ranks. We got to close the ranks. But there's another truth in this passage. To prepare for great things, we must continue to pray for power. Look at verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer. They all join together constantly in prayer. You see what's going on here. This band of believers, it doesn't say that some of them join together. Luke goes to great lengths to express their unity here. I mean, it's not that just they join together. It says all of them join together. How? Continuously. I mean, you get the point. This is a pretty serious group of people meeting together. There was 100% participation. He doesn't say in this passage uh, uh, that in, in, in verse 14, all of them but Peter joined together. All of them but, but a couple of them joined. He goes, no, all, they all joined together continuously. And here's the thing that's interesting. God had told them to go back. Jesus had told them to go back to Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And most theologians say they were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit because they didn't know when it was going to come. They didn't know. So can you imagine that? They're, they're continuously praying for something that God has already promised to do for them. They're praying, send the Holy Spirit. Send the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, we want to experience your power. God, we want to experience your Holy Spirit. God, we want to experience the comforter that you promised us when Jesus left us. Their prayer was continuous about that. Wouldn't it be great to be like that? Wouldn't it be great to be the kind of church that's praying for what God has already promised? Listen, God still makes promises for his children. The problem is we never pray. We never pray to experience those promises. God's promises do not render prayer useless. Let me say that again. God's promises do not render prayer useless. It's only his promises that give us confidence that he will hear and answer our prayers. Did you know that God might be ready to bless your family if you just pray? 
Did you realize that God might be ready to send people falling to their knees in repentance if we would just pray? Do you realize that God might be standing right now, right now, ready to send a revival to his church if his church would just pray? He might be. God may be waiting for his people to pray so that he can fulfill his promises. I would dare say, the moment I mentioned about praying together, the majority of you already checked out. You're looking, I see you looking at your watches. When's this going to be done? When's this going to be over? You need to understand something. When you go back and look at history, all the revivals that happened in history always began with prayer. They always began with prayer. You look at the great awakenings of John Wesley in England and Ireland and Wales. It all began with prayer. You look at the great awakenings under Wesley and, and Whitfield and, and Charles Finney, you would see that it all began with prayer. The first disciples held a 10-day prayer meeting before the Holy Spirit finally came upon those believers. They joined together and continually prayed. But unfortunately, in church, and look, this, this is not my first rodeo, all right? Uh, this is not my first church I've pastored. I hope it's going to be my last. No, let me say, it is going to be my last. So if you don't like it that I'm here... <laughs> Tough luck, I'm here. <laughs> Wednesday night is the poorest attended meeting of the church, unless we have a business meeting to talk about changing a name or removing a wall. Yeah, if I want to bring, what I are, and I thought about, I'm not this meme. I said, you know, we ought to stir up a controversy, put it in the vision, and get every people there and say, we lied, we're just going to pray. I'm being facetious, you know that. You know that. I would never do that. I don't think. <laughs> Wednesday night of the poorest attendance of prayer meeting. People just don't come. I guess they're afraid that, oh, they may ask me to pray. Those of you don't, we don't ask anybody to pray. We let you volunteer. We have to volunteer. But when we have 15 to 20 people gathering together on Wednesday night to pray. It is pitiful. Pitiful. We should be doing better than that. Now, what we normally do on Wednesday night, we start doing Bible studies. And Bible study attendance increases. And I'll tell you what, if you want to do a Bible study and get people to come teach on Revelation, the attendance will double with the book of Revelation. I vowed I'd never teach the book of Revelation again. Every time I teach Revelation, they run me out of the church. <laughs> why is that? You want me to tell you why? That we have such a fascination with the book of Revelation? Because we're more concerned about Jesus coming than we are about what we're supposed to do today. We're just like disciples. We're gazing. When's Jesus going to come? And Jesus said, quit looking up and look around. Look around and see. Do you realize that if Jesus was to come today, many of our family would not be there? 
Do you realize that if Jesus was to come today, many of our friends and our neighbors here in this community would not be there? So we say, come Lord Jesus. Not yet. Not yet. I have children. I have grandchildren that need Jesus. Some of you have children and grandchildren that need Jesus. God has said, you realize that God has sent over 16,000 grandchildren to Waco at Baylor University. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. Second first church I served at, the pastor wanted to go to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And so we went, we went into prayer and, began, and slowly attendance began to dwindle. And then the pastors got rid of prayer meeting and started doing Bible study and attendance picked back up. I remember hearing the story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was given a group of visitors a tour of that great facility there in London. And he was talking about the various rooms and everything. He said, come, let me show you the power plant. And so he took the individuals, and they were, thought they were going to see the, the heating apparatus, and he opens the door, and there were 400 people on their knees in prayer. Let me ask you a question. Where's the heating apparatus of our church? Where's the source of power for our church? Do you know where it's at? Do you know... When it meets, we have two times that we offer prayer, concerted prayer. Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, we're going to move it this Saturday, okay? This is how optimistic I am. I'm just an optimistic guy, man. We usually meet in the partners class, so I'm going to tell my guys, turn on the garden wing this Saturday. We're meeting in the garden wing. We're going to pray. I see about 110 people here. I expect to see 110. And we're going to write the names down because we're going to, you know, make a list, check it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. No, we're not going to do that. It's between you and God and your church and your church. We'll be in the garden wing, no coffee, no snacks, just prayer. We're going to feast a little bit with Jesus on that day. The other time is Wednesday nights. I know sometimes, I know sometimes Wednesday nights can be a little hectic for some of you don't like to drive. It's a little hard to drive at night. I understand that. You know, but here's what you can do. If you cannot come on Wednesday night at 6.30 to pray. Now, this week we start meals at 5. Uh, if you can't come, would you do this? Would you, wherever you're at, would you stop what you're doing and just start praying at 6.30? 6.30. Start praying for the church. And, you know, you pray five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Or, you know, at 7.30, you know, close, say, amen, I'm in agreement, God. Whatever they prayed back at Western Heights is on Wednesday night, Lord, I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement. Uh, let's do that. And then when, the, when, the, when, the, when we get back in the daylight savings time, which I think is, is, is a thing from Satan myself. I don't think we need it, okay? And we're not agricultural people. We don't need it anymore. Uh, uh, we don't need it. When the weather, when the light starts coming up, more of you will show up and we'll just pray. And here's the thing. We're not normally a slave to the clock. But if we go over a little bit in the choir practice, trust me, 
God won't mind. He won't mind. Kip mind. No, no, I'm not, no, because he wants you in choir practice, okay? That's okay. You can, you, you, he'll pray, all right? Pray for more people in the choir. There you go. Uh, so, you know, but that's okay. If you need to get up and leave and go to the choir, that's okay. That's God honoring. There's nothing wrong with that because you're being obedient to God. Where the spiritual warmth is in the church is where people are gathered for prolonged, heartfelt prayer. We need to prepare ourselves for great things. God's power, we need to pray for God's power to become evident in our individual lives and in the life of this church. Is that what you want? Is that what you want as a church? Then it'll only happen as we prepare ourselves for that. I hope that you want to be like a New Testament church. I hope that's what you, uh, you want to be because the Constitution bylaw says the pastor is responsible for leading the church to be a New Testament church. So I don't have any, I don't have any choices. I have to. That's your mandate from you for me to do that. And when I read that, I said, wow, that's pretty freeing. Because all I got to do is go to Acts 1 and Acts 2 and Acts 3. And I begin to see what it is that we as a church need to be doing. We need to live up to the great expectations that God has for his church. The question I have to ask you, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do to experience those great expectations in your life and in this church? In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time when we give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe God's call upon your life this morning. Maybe you need to come and pray. You know, not a prolonged prayer, you know, just a simple prayer. Say, God, I love you. God, I love you. And God, I love this church. And God, I want to see you be all that you can be in this church. God, use me. Use me. Use me. I tell you, God will hear that. Simple, straightforward, to the point. Maybe you need to pray something like this. Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. You know, after Jesus prayed that prayer, you know what he did? He went to the cross and died for you, and he died for me. Wouldn't it be great to be comprised of a church that said, God, not our will be done, but your will be done. And we'd be willing to die to self and live for him. Some of you might need to do that. For others of you, you know, maybe you're visiting and you say, yeah, I need a church home. I need a place where I can come. I can, I can be loved. I can, be, I can love people. I can be loved by people. I can be cared for and I can care for people. A place where I can be strengthened in my walk. I can be encouraged to be all that I can be in Christ Jesus. We want to invite you to do that. We'll tell you how to do that. For others of you, maybe uh, through the process of time, you've come to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've never made that public. The Bible says, you're not confessed me before men, I'll not confess you before my Father in heaven. It's very important, my friends, that you make it public. It is a private commitment, but it is a public confession. So some of you said, you know, I've, I've received Jesus, but I want to make it public. And I want to be a part of this fellowship of believers. The Bible says we ought to go and make disciples. 
Make disciples. It says baptizing them into the church. We talked about this. Baptizing them in the church means incorporating them into a body of believers. Listen, baptism is, does not save us. It has no power whatsoever. But it is an important, it is an important thing because it says I'm identifying with this church. I'm identifying with these teachings. I'm identifying with what this group believes. And I'm putting myself under their, under their, under their discipline and under their discipleship. Why? So they can teach me all the things I need to know. You don't skip the process. You don't make disciples and teach them. You make disciples, get them in a church, and teach them. It's a process. Some of you say, I need to be a part of a church. Well, we can teach you all that you need to know. Kip's going to come and lead us. Marilyn, Cassie are going to come and play. And just stand to your feet as I lead us in a time of prayer. Josh going to make his way down. We'll be here at the front praying. We'll be here at the front waiting for you. Maybe you need to come and pray. Kneel here. Maybe you need to have one of us pray for you. We'll be here for you. Whatever decision God is leading you to make, we're here for you.